1989, After Humanity, written and narrated by Paul Inman. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter, at Paul Inman SC. Chapter 7, Success, August 1980. The device only consisted of a circuit board with capacitors, microchips, and ribbon tape moving digital information through a series of wires. It was just a machine, and yet it was more. The plastic covering was removed, exposing the guts of the microwave-sized mock-up. It was carelessly thrown aside as an older gentleman in a white smock inspected the interior. The man had graying hair around his temples and spectacles rested on the bridge of his nose. His given name, Tadashi Geniochi, was a mouthful, even for the boldest members of the modest research and development team. Most of them affectionately referred to him as Dr. J. Jinyochi was fixated on the innards of his creation. He used an oversized suspended magnifying glass as he inspected the components. For some reason, the device kept overheating, destroying the power supply over and over again. The latest mishap melted not only the supply and cord, but part of the circuit board as well. Jinochi noted that the damage was extensive this time. Parts of the motherboard would have to be replaced, possibly the entire thing. Power supply shot, circuit board damaged, possible repair? He wrote his truncated notes down the margin of a yellow legal pad on the left side of the workbench, humming tunelessly as he worked. Next, he removed the blown power supply, placing it in the broken components bin under the desk. Junochi shook his head as he inspected the circuit board one more time. He grabbed a Phillips head screwdriver and removed the six short screws that held the board in place. Gingerly, he lifted the panel from its casing and placed it on the bench opposite the notepad. Now, with it out of its case, he could see the damage wasn't as extensive as he'd believed. There was a melted section of plastic and a large crack running across the part of the board. He reached up, switching on an overhead work light, and repositioned the magnifying glass over the circuitry. Luckily, the melted plastic didn't contain any of the copper traces that carried the signal from one jumper to the next. There was, however, a crack that spiderwebbed its way through the damaged side of the board. Using a flathead screwdriver, Jinochi scraped away the layer of conformal coating around the cracks, exposing the copper wiring underneath the plastic. He quickly added some liquid flux before soldering new jumper wires across the microscopic fissure, re-establishing the connection of the broken traces. Other cracks needed to be stop-drilled to prevent more spider webs. His work was quick and sloppy, nothing to be proud of. He'd have time for refinements after he'd succeeded with at least one of his full tests. He jotted on the yellow pad again. Board intact, more or less. May not withstand another beating like this one. Tadashi Jinochi, Dr. J, dropped his pen, turned on his heel, and walked across the room to the medium-sized cardboard box filled with spare parts. He dug around inside the box for a full minute before finding what he was looking for. It's always the last press you rook, he thought, pulling the power supply out of the tangle of cords and cables. Jinochi hurried back to his workbench and tossed the power supply down, choosing to reinstall his bandaged board first. After securing the board to the case and attaching the ribbon cables and wires, 
He deftly put in the working power supply. His pet project would live again. Technically, for the first time, if it worked at all. He lifted the power cord, visually inspecting the guts one final time before breathing electrical life into the device. Satisfied with his shoddy patchwork, he plugged in the machine, fully expecting it to overload once again. However, to his own surprise, it did not. Success, Dr. J whispered breathlessly, then realization hit home. Shit, it's working. I've got to run diagnostics. He ran to the storage shelving on the opposite side of the R&D room and dug through a bunched mess of broken keyboards, deciding on one that only had a few missing letters. As he tucked it under his arm, he bent down to a lower shelf where he picked up a printer. The bulky device trailed continuous feed paper from behind it as he clumsily scurried back to his workbench. He placed the new items down beside his still-working prototype, plugging the right wires into the correct ports. Dr. J adjusted his glasses, flexed his fingers, and began typing a series of short computer coding that began the diagnostic checkup. This prototype didn't have the capability to be connected to a monitor, so the coding wasn't overly complex. After a minute of nothing, he reached around to the back of the dot matrix printer and flipped the power switch. It sprung to life almost immediately and began to make its telltale print sounds that reminded Genochi of the screech of some mythical banshee. As the print head danced across the paper, Dr. J reached over and jotted on his yellow pad again. Diagnostics check in progress. So far, so good. He glanced at the slow printing readout and was perplexed by what he saw. The usual programming language in truncated shorthand was nowhere to be seen. Instead, Strange, cryptic, text-based words and symbols appeared on the paper. Strange. Genochi tore off the first page as it finished. The diagnostics continued to run. He held the paper under the work light, studying the perplexing print. A few of the characters were English, and others seemed to be a mashup of Cyrillic, Kanji, and Greek characters. The symbols immediately stood out to the engineer as being something he'd never seen before. As he studied them, he wondered, How could this printer create these? They seem too intricate for the limitations of the machine. He inspected the pages several more times, looking for something that might stand out. The sound of the dot matrix print head screeching as it continued printing pulled him out of his thoughts and drew his eyes to the steadily growing pile of pages. This time, Tadashi Genochi skipped the yellow legal pad and went straight to the telephone. Hi, sir, he said after pressing a few numbers. This is Tadashi, in research and development. The box I've been working on? He glanced down to the paper in his hand. I... I need you to see this. Chapter 8 The New Kid August 1980 I, I just don't know what I'm looking for. The young woman phrased the sentence in an odd questioning way. Then she looked to her mentor for clarification. I don't know what it is. I hooked up the printer for diagnostics, and it spit this out before I could run anything more than basic checks, Genochi said. Well, the machine doesn't seem to be working as intended. She smirked at her own wit. No shit, Simone, he blurted, not picking up the social cues. I was joking. She blushed. 
Simone was here with a small startup working through a college internship. It didn't hurt that she was the niece of the CEO either. She was a slender, medium-height woman with long black hair and dark eyes. Tadashi was facilitating the internship as part of his duties with the company. He was, after all, the lead on the current project. Do you see a pattern? Simone asked. Not offhand, but I'm not sure what to look for either. Do you see one? he asked. Simone held up the loose end of the paper, the other end was still attached to the dot matrix printer, and studied it for a long time. Genocchi's young protege had a great visual eye for details. That's why he called her over right after he'd gotten off the phone with the CEO upstairs. I don't know, Dr. J, she began. It seems like there should be something here, but after staring at it for a few minutes now, nothing's jumping out at me. I think you're right. There is something here. He responded as he looked over her shoulder. We need some more eyes on this. Hopefully, your uncle will accommodate my request. Blot, Inc. was the brainchild of A.C. Dunning. The A.C. was short for Arthur Charles. He was named after his grandfather who immigrated to the United States just before the First World War. Like his grandfather, A.C. was interested in cutting-edge technology. For the elder Dunning, the technological advances seen during the war sparked a great interest in the science of aviation and artillery. The younger Dunning found himself enamored by computing machines during the 60s and 70s. Dunning, however, was not a computing genius, but he was a businessman. After gathering capital from investors, leaning heavily on the idea that personal computers were the way of the future, he founded the company that would become Blot Inc. to rival Apple and IBM. Blot Inc. had some minor success in home computing, but they were still a relative unknown outside of the southern region of California. Dr. Ginocchi's Project Murado was looking to change that. Down in R&D, Ginocchi was supposed to be developing a home computer that would integrate computational systems to talk with one another in the same basic language, also incorporating an ARPANET-like web of global communications. Developing the idea from early sketches to the prototype stage had taken longer than anticipated, but Dunning was aware that when you break new ground, patience was critical to success. There were several ongoing hardware failures that had pushed the original timeline back into the new decade. Dunning's original plan was to have computer communication usher in the 1980s. Obviously, that didn't happen. Not ten minutes after the strange call, A.C. Dunning stepped around the corner into Genocchi's workspace, greeting his niece with a warm hug and clasping hands with the doctor. Doctor? He pumped the man's hand and nodded a quick greeting. What have you got for me? Mr. Dunning, sir. Genocchi bowed slightly as he greeted his superior. The machine is running. Dunning cut him off. That's fantastic. Have you tried the software yet? Well, sir. He awkwardly jumbled his vocabulary. Unsure of how to proceed. There's... No. I... No, no. The print page... No. Spit it out, man. Simone jumped in. What he's trying to get at, Uncle A, is that it's experiencing some kind of malfunction. She motioned to the machine and the attached printer. As he began to run systems checks, the computer just ran its own program, I guess. But anyway, it printed this. 
Simone held up the first few folded pages of paper. Okay. He stared blankly. What are we looking at? That's the million dollar question, interjected Genocchi, finally finding his voice. We don't know what we're looking at. It's nothing I've ever seen come out of computational systems before. Wouldn't you call that a system error, Dr. Genocchi? Dunning's disappointment was thinly veiled. Let's get Mackenzie back in the software and find the bugs. Maybe not, Uncle A, said Simone, holding up the pages again for emphasis. This seems a little too systematic to be random. Even though Dr. J and I can't make heads or tails of it, we still feel like there's something here. Dr. Genocchi nodded in agreement. Sir, if we could have some resources to devote to this enigma... Dunning jumped in. I don't know, Tadashi. We're already more than six months behind. I've been very patient, but someone else is going to beat us to the punch. I don't think that... Uncle, please! This is what we've been looking for, and we don't yet understand it. Dunning took the first few pages from his niece, careful not to tear them from the trail of pages linking it to the printer, and turned to the magnification light. He looked them over for a long minute, not understanding what he was seeing, before turning back to Genocchi and his niece. Fine, he spoke curtly, but two weeks is all I'm giving you. If you don't make any discoveries, then we are scrapping this. Dunning held up the pages. Whatever this is, and we're reworking the hardware and software. Got it? The pair smiled, barely holding back their excitement, and nodded in agreement. Use whoever you need. Two weeks, Genocchi. No more. With that, A.C. Dunning turned and left them to their work. Simone, Dr. Genocchi looked at the intern. Go get everyone. There were two other people who worked in R&D. Jake McKenzie, the computer programmer, and Doris Jeffries, the troubleshooting technician. Turns out the ragtag team that Genocchi put together, the intern, the programmer, the technician, and the lead only needed three days to begin to crack the code, with a little help. It was Doris who first mentioned Alan Turing and his work to crack the Enigma machine. She was looking for any sort of pattern in the jumbled mass of symbols and letters when the thought occurred to her that this was a lot like finding the patterns from war transmissions, albeit a bit more complex. We could take that idea Turing had and make it specific for what we're doing. I don't know how to do it, though, she said. Genocchi considered her idea. A good idea. Look into how to get it started. We can get you whatever you need. The first day rolled by with little forward momentum, but lots of research. Doris and Jake worked on the research aspect, while Genocchi and Simone worked on separating all the symbols and letter combinations from the pages by handwriting them all in their own individual journals. The pair were systematic and careful to follow the pages while writing down the letters and drawing the symbols in case a logical pattern emerged. After 12 hours of work, there were two composition notebooks almost completely filled. One contained all the jumbled letters from several different languages, carefully separated into sections of the book. The other was full of meaningless symbols, most of them only barely discernible from the previous ones. Genocchi and Simone were the last to leave that evening, even though the doctor had asked the young woman to leave after her normal shift. She was much too involved to walk away. That evening, as Simone lay in her bed, visions of the pages and the symbols that filled the paper and the randomness of it all bounced around her brain. She kept coming back to the notion of numbers, even though the pages didn't contain any numbers, 
at least none that she'd come across yet. She rolled over onto her side, pulling up the covers to her ears. She was tired. The long day had drained her body, but still her mind raced. Numbers, she thought. What about numbers? Patterns, maybe? Simone squeezed her eyes closed, pulled in a deep breath, held it momentarily, and slowly exhaled, trying to relax her body and mind in stages. The third deep breath she'd pulled into her lungs brought clarity as well as oxygen. She slowly pushed her way up into a sitting position. Numbers. Patterns. She mumbled into the darkness. A vague idea was taking shape. She hopped out of bed, put on her pajama bottoms, and went into the living area to find the phone book. The next morning, Simone was not as punctual as she normally was. After an hour passed, Dr. Ginocchi began to worry. First, he tried calling her uncle to see if he knew where the young woman was. It was a wasted effort. Her uncle didn't keep up with Simone's every move, but he did pass along her phone number to the doctor. Ginocchi placed the phone receiver into the cradle, hesitated for a long moment before trying to reach the girl at her private residence. He drew in a deep breath, exhaling slowly as he scooped up the receiver and began spinning the rotary dial. The phone's earpiece was buzzing its second ring when Simone walked into R&D. She wasn't alone. A man, if one could call him a man, he was easily a few years younger than the 19-year-old Simone, strolled in behind her, hands tucked into his faded denim pockets. Hi all, sorry I'm late, but I had an idea late last night and I couldn't really pursue it until this morning. She grinned as she walked up to the table where Doris and Jake were sitting, books piled all around them. Ginocchi hung up the phone and spoke as he walked over to the group. Oh, I assume this young man is part of the idea? He turned to the man and held out his hand in an awkward gesture of greeting. Tadashi Ginocchi. He bowed slightly as he vigorously shook the young man's hand. Yes, Simone began. This is James Hensley. Jim, if you'd like, said James. Simone continued. This is Doris. Hi. That's Jake. Pleasure. And you can call him Dr. J. It's a bit easier than Jin whatever. Simone purposely mispronounced his name. It's Genochi. Did you not know that? Genochi was genuinely puzzled. Come on, Doc. You need to get out of the lab more often. She threw him a sideways glance. I go home every day after my shift, Genochi said earnestly. The team ignored his comment. So, Jake said, what's the deal, kid? Right, Simone began. So, I was in bed when it occurred to me that we aren't code-breaking specialists. Doris interjected. No shit, Simone continued. But, I remembered that there are mathematicians at the college that specialize in working on these types of complex formulas. You know, the ones with all the variables, imaginary numbers, and theoretical stuff. I thought I would see if I could get some help. I called one of my professors and he recommended Jim. This morning, I went over to the math department and gave him a quick rundown of what was going on. I didn't even know he was part of the math department. We had history class together last semester. She flashed a quick, beautiful smile in James Hensley's direction. After talking with him this morning, he definitely knows his stuff. Jake flicked his eyes toward Ginocchi, then back to Hensley. How old are you, kid? Twelve? Thirteen? James Hensley didn't hesitate. I'll be sixteen in February. Finished high school with honors when I was 13. I was valedictorian, too. I'm majoring in advanced cryptology. In other words, code breaking. 
I'm the only kid at that level in the school right now. Actually, the only kid in the country at that level. I've been able to break down the most advanced historical codes ever written. Impressive, Doris said. But this isn't a research paper. This is a new, never-before-seen code which... Genochi cleared his throat, signaling Doris to stop speaking. There was an awkward pause that stretched out between the group. I don't know. Genochi, suddenly very nervous, addressed Simone. This project is top secret. He may be able to help, but I don't think your uncle... She interrupted. My uncle said we've got two weeks or this project is done. Doris jumped in. Actually, he said the project was to be rebooted. Yeah, I know what he said, Doris. My point is, too much work has gone into this for us to scrap it and start from scratch, right? Simone eyed each member of the small group. In turn, one by one, they dropped their gaze. Exactly what I thought. My question is, what do we have to lose? If Jim can help us, then why shouldn't he be able to try? To hell with my uncle. Genochi studied Simone for a moment longer. Finally, he looked to Doris, then Jake. He turned back to James and Simone. Give us a moment. The two young people walked toward the exit doors of the R&D lab. Simone, I don't think they liked the idea of... Before James could finish his thought, they were called to come back. Okay. Genochi said. Let's get to work. Simone, bring Mr. Hensley up to speed. Simone grinned from ear to ear, grabbed James by the arm, and took him over to the table with the composition notebooks. Yes, sir. This is going to be great. You've been listening to 1989, After Humanity, written and narrated by Paul Inman. Follow Aubrey and Drake on Twitter at TMC Restores and follow me at Paul Inman SC. Please rate and review on Apple Podcast and anywhere podcasts are available. It really helps. Email 1989afterhumanity at gmail.com with any feedback.